Hey, welcome to part two of our series, Moving Forward by Looking Back. My name is Taylor, and today we're going to be talking about those moments when you probably should have said something, but you didn't. Those are definitely some tough moments for sure. So how do we handle those? How can we do that better as we move forward in our lives? I'm so glad you're here. I, uh, I really like that um, because I'm guessing there's been a time in your life that you've experienced a, an unexpected charge on a bill um, and you kind of were maybe a little upset about that. Or the worst is an increase in the bill that you weren't expecting. Um, or uh, my personal favorite, when there's the fine print on the coupon and then you go to use the coupon expecting to just get a killer deal and then they're like, actually, you can't combine these two specific coupons. And if you read the fine print and compared the, you know, the barcodes, you'd know that. And it's like, I, I wouldn't know that because that's not how I live my life. And it's frustrating and you sit there and um, it kind of goes through your head. Some of you, you think about this a little bit longer than others of you, um, but you kind of think to yourself, well, should I say something? And uh, there's a group of us who the answer right away is like, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to avoid the entire situation. I'll just keep my mouth shut. There's probably a good reason. And you just kind of leave it. Um, others of you are like born for these moments. Like for some reason, somewhere in your upbringing, this was like your go-to. I mean, the gloves come off. You are ready to fight the injustice of an accurate increased billing or unfair use of coupons. And you just go to town. I mean, you let them have it. It's gloves off. And then there's another group of you who might say you just kind of like take it as it goes. But really, I think what you do if you have a spouse is you just sit there and you call your spouse up and complain about the whole situation to which your spouse is sitting there like, well, why didn't you just go say something? And then you become the problem. And then the whole situation degrades because they almost treat you like you were the one who messed up the coupon and the billing and it just becomes a whole mess. I don't know if I'm talking about my life or yours. Could be more my life. I don't know. But just you get it, right? I mean, there's a moment to say something. There's a moment not to say something. Some of us lean into that a little too much and some of us don't at all. And um, no matter how that looks, it's difficult though. You have to think about it, especially as you kind of like raise the stakes on those situations. I'm talking about like if it's a friend or a family member. I mean, it's not just a customer service rep. It's not just somebody at the store with a coupon. I mean, it's somebody that's close to you. And you see something that's probably not right that you feel maybe is like a little unfair. And you have a decision. Do you say something or not? Do you potentially like cause an explosion within your family or do you just let it slide this year? and then the next year, and then the next year. Or I think if, the, if you wanted to raise the stakes even more, when you see something that you know isn't right, that you probably should say something about, but the reality is it doesn't affect you at all. I mean, it's somebody else raising their kid and their parenting style, and even if you're pretty sure that's like not a parenting style that's just like straight up wrong, you sit there and you think to yourself, but this doesn't affect me. And so I'm essentially going to insert myself into a whole situation that I don't really have a stake in the game. But you know it's wrong. You know they shouldn't be dating her. You know they shouldn't be dating them. But do you say anything? Or maybe you see an exchange or a problem and the, the person like comes to you and they're just so upset and and you know that the problem isn't the other person. The problem is the person standing in front of you complaining about it. And so do you tell that person that, well, I'm sorry, but I don't think they're the problem. I think you're the problem. And some of you, that, that's, that's something that at least most of us would think twice about doing. And it's difficult because 
you know almost intuitively that something should be done or maybe something should change or that isn't right. It feels most certainly, and I think all of us know this, is it feels sometimes a bit easier just to avoid the whole thing altogether. And that's why I thought, especially in this series, as we think about moving forward by looking back, we think about how we move forward or how we have moved forward past situations in our past where we think to ourselves, well, maybe I should have said something, or I probably should have, some, should have said something. I could have said something, but I didn't say something, and now it's just too late. I try um, personally to learn a lot about leadership um, because I'm in a role that requires some degree of leadership ability, and one of the most interesting things I've just kind of stumbled upon, and so this is just a free little tidbit for you if, if you're in a position of, of, um, of influence over others, um, is that um, this, this organization, uh, in their orientation process, the leader comes in front of everybody and says, I need to know the last 10%. I need to know the last 10%. And as I thought about it, because there wasn't much explanation in it, I kind of got it, though, just intuitively, like, because isn't our tendency to share, like, 90% of it, and then the 10% that's uncomfortable or they may not like, and it's just, it could get weird, uh, we just don't say anything about it? And it's only 10%, right? I mean, if you're in grade school, you're at least sharing 90, so your conscience can be clear because you're practically getting an A in the relationship. But there's still 10% that goes unsaid. And so as a leader specifically saying and explaining to people, no, I need to know that last 10% that you kind of just want to gloss over or sugarcoat because that could be a 10% that we need to address. That could be a problem that we could learn from and grow from. And that could really help us. But it is just so much easier when we're on the other side of that, when we have to be the one to share the 10%, it feels easier just to avoid it all together. And so, as we move forward, and as maybe we look at our past as an example, maybe we could go forward and be a bit more comfortable with saying something when kind of we know that we should. And so, to illustrate that whole idea, that whole concept, um, I'm going to share with you a story that's about 3,200 years old, uh, happening in approximately around 1200 B.C., um, and it's a story of a moment when somebody should have said something, and they didn't, and well, surprise, surprise, it didn't turn out very well. Um, and so to do that, I need to give you a little quick backstory, and I'm going to be like, it's a really quick backstory for as much territory as I'm covering here. But long story short, if you grew up in church, you might be familiar with what's called the promised land. Um, it just sounds really great, and honestly, if you go to what was called the promised land, you're like, this is not very great at all. Like, Iowa is like a promised land compared to this geographical location. But God's people, the Israelites, were destined to go to the promised land, and they finally, finally show up in the promised land. Joshua uh, brings the people into the promised land, which is approximately, I'll show you a map in just a second, right in the middle of modern-day Israel. And the nation of Israel is essentially born and finds its home. They establish themselves, um, and they establish their capital. And the capital wasn't just kind of a political center. It was primarily a religious center because essentially God was in charge of the nation. Um, and so in the map, um, I'll show you right here, this is modern-day Israel, and then it's broken into what's called the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It's not crucial for today, but this is 
kind of the map of what the nation of Israel looked like back then. And right here in the middle is a place called Shiloh. And Shiloh was the central capital at that time before Jerusalem um, for the nation of Israel. And so it's kind of a, kind of a big deal um, because in, in Shiloh is where the presence of God resides. Specifically, the presence of God resided in what was called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you're familiar with Indiana Jones, uh, you, you may be familiar with the, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, though I really encourage you to read the Bible version, maybe not the movie version, but if you want to make it easy on yourself, I guess you can just watch that. It's, it's a little different, but beside the point. Okay, anyways, Ark of the Covenant's in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle's essentially a big tent. Here's what that looks like. And so in Shiloh, if you would have gone 1,300 years ago, there would have been this giant tent with this tent cloth fence around it, and in there was the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God, okay? And so this is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal, and you don't even have to be religious to understand this, is because um, when you go into, like, sacred places, you change your behavior a little bit, right? I mean, you don't even have to be religious. If you just, like, go to Europe and you go in some of the big churches in Europe, or, or if you've ever been to a temple before, or maybe a mosque, there is a degree of reverence required when you go in, right? I mean, what do you do? You maybe quiet your voice a little bit, talk softly and respectfully. Maybe there's like a ceremonial washing as you wash, walk in, and there's some hands, some feet, you clean, clean yourself up, because, uh, or, or you take your hat off, or in some cases you put your hat back on because you're supposed to cover your head or some, some extent of that because there is a degree of reverence in that space. Except that infuse because we give you coffee, food, candy, uh, and we're in a gym, and sometimes I wear shorts. So we probably tend more on, like, the irreverent side of things. Uh, maybe something we should fix. I wonder it a lot, but beside the point, that's a conversation for another time. But anyways, if you're here, it's, like, super reverent, okay? Because not only is the presence of God here, but God has laid down some rules and requirements of how you're supposed to behave, especially within the Holy of Holies, within the tabernacle, within the place where God resides, and so the bar is set super, super high, super, super high. The rules have to be followed, essentially, and that's where our problem begins because there were some people who didn't follow the rules. Shocker, and the first character you need to know about to get this story is a guy named Eli, and Eli was the high priest at the time. Um, essentially, he's the big man on campus. He's kind of in charge of it all, of all religion, of priestly things, and honestly, in some ways, a lot of ways, politically, he was kind of in charge. And the problem, in a part, wasn't so much with Eli, it was his two sons. He had two sons. Uh, the first one was named Hophni, and the second one was Phinehas. And his two sons, um, well, they were unique individuals. Uh, in fact, if you um, go home and read the story we're going to read in here in just a second, you'll open your Bible um, or your app to 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is what we're going to be in today, and you're going to read the beginning of this whole story, okay? And here's how the author of 1 Samuel describes these two brothers. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. We don't even use scoundrels that often. Have you noticed that? I just think it would be interesting if all of y'all this week uh, should take away a point from the message. It should be to try to incorporate that into your, um, into your week somewhere, okay? Just like with your kids or somebody, just be like, you're being a scoundrel, and they're going to be like, huh? 
I don't know. Anyways, so they were scoundrels, okay? And if you don't know what scoundrels means, it's like they were like, I mean, they were just annoying. They got into things. They did things they weren't supposed to do. It wasn't good, okay? So problem one that made them scoundrels um, is that they uh, essentially took things they weren't supposed to. So essentially, God set up this really nice system to make sure the priests were taken care of. Um, and it actually was a really, really smart way of doing this, I think, because it's not like the priests worked the day job, per se. Their day job was to be priests, and so somehow they had to make a living, and they, they had to eat, and all that kind of stuff, so one of the ways they did this is when people, normal people, came to the tabernacle and offered a sacrifice to God for, for the forgiveness of their sins, because that's the system that they were in at the time. There's the sacrificial system. They would probably bring, like, a lamb or something, and then they have to execute the lamb on the altar and to pay for their sins, Essentially, that lamb would be taken, and then the meat would be taken, and the meat would be cooked, and then the priests were supposed to come along with essentially a really big fork, and in this pot of water where the meat is cooking, they would take this fork and just like slam it into the water, and whatever they could pull out, whatever meat would be impaled on the fork is the meat that they could eat. And so um, it was a really good method because that way, like, the priests wouldn't be eating flame and yawn every night, okay? Because, let's be honest, if you eat flame and yawn, like, six out of seven days of the week, like, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself, okay? You know, maybe a little bacon wrapped, a little, you know, stuffed jalapeno, stuffed mushroom on the side, you know what I'm saying? Okay, that's like my jam, but I'm like, okay, anyways, that got a little too close for comfort. Okay, so anyways, um, yeah, so that's what they were supposed to do, but but, uh, the problem with these two brothers is they didn't do that. Essentially, they came in, and they wanted the filet mignon, and so before before, before they even put the meat in the pot, they would do this, essentially. And they wouldn't even show up themselves. They'd send their servant to do this, and here's what happened. Before even the fat was burned, essentially before the meat had even touched the water, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, this is what they say, give the priest some meat to roast. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Because essentially, like, the two brothers had got this great herbal recipe from High V, got some herbs together, and they were going to marinate that, that baby for a while, maybe put in their new slow cooker or their, uh, their uh, smoker out back of the tent, and they were just going to have themselves a delicious, medium-rare cooked piece of meat, okay? And the people who would bring the sacrifices and would have the meat they oftentimes push back because they knew it wasn't right for them to do. So if the person, the story goes on, if the person said to him, the servant, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, which is the right way to do it, the servant would then answer, I love this, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I will take it by force. I want to let you know a little secret. One of the quickest ways to upset God like really upset him, is when you use God and God's law and the authority and power that has been given to you because of the position that you're in within God's kingdom for your benefit and to the detriment of God's people. When you use God's law to hurt God's people, or in Christian terms, when you use like Jesus's words to hurt the people for whom Jesus died, really gets God upset. God doesn't like that very much. And unfortunately, I think as Christians, we may sometimes be a little all too guilty of doing that. And so, the story goes on. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. 
for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So that was sin problem number one. Number two is a little bit more self-explanatory. Um, I'm going to use some coded language so we can be uh, mindful of everybody in the room. Um, but essentially, the two brothers spent some really long and very close nights with the ladies who worked at the tabernacle. You tracking me? Okay. Like, long nights, okay? And turns out that that's probably not very good. I mean, you don't even have to be like a, a, a Christian or religious person to know like, oh, time out. I just, something doesn't seem right about that, Right? I mean, like, before he even became a Christian, you kind of knew, like, hey, that's not what you should be doing. And isn't that kind of true in our lives, too, though? I mean, you just know they shouldn't be doing that. And I should probably say something, and I don't know if I will because it would be easier not to, so I'm just going to let that slide, but you could. Maybe you should say something. You should say something to your coworker. Maybe you should say something to your boss. Maybe you should say something to your family member. But then we go into this whole excuse game, you know, like, well, you know, they're just boys and they're young and, you know, it's not a big deal. They'll get over it. They'll grow up. It's not, you know, whatever. And we just let it go. And, and I think in our minds, the excuse that we use is we're not sure why, so we just let it slide. We're not sure why they do what they do. And so because we don't know why and we don't understand it, we're not going to figure it out. We're not going to ask questions. We're just going to let it slide. And that's what happened in this story to a great extent. Why are these guys doing it? I don't know, but they're doing it. Everybody kind of knows it. And so we're just going to, I guess, let it go. And you kind of sit there in the story and you kind of think to yourself, if only, if only there was somebody in this story, a character perhaps, who, you know, is supposed to be like, the moral compass, you know, supposed to like be really tight with God and supposed to be bringing God's word and, and maybe it's somebody who has like authority, maybe like a, not like, like a middle of the management, but like the head priest, uh, maybe like a high priest or like, let's be honest, where's these brothers father at? Shouldn't they be something or shouldn't he be doing something about it? And to which we all say, well, yeah, isn't the high priest and their father the same guy? Shouldn't, Eli be doing something about this? And the interesting thing is if you read this story a little too quickly, I think you miss the transition of time that, take that takes place because in some ways, almost within just a matter of verses, decades, we don't know how many, but possibly even decades go by. And Eli, the high priest, and their father did nothing did nothing. And maybe, maybe he had a good reason, right? I mean, maybe there was an excuse that he could give, like, you know, yeah, they're just young, or, you know, he's the high priest, so if they're doing something bad, he's doing enough good to kind of, like, wash it out, and then it works, right? But that's not how it works. And when you let it slide, when you maybe should say something, but you don't, there's a good probability, I'm not saying it always, but there's a good probability it could cost you, it could cost them, or most definitely it could cost others when you let it slide. And here's how I know, for one, that Eli let it slide for a while. Because when the story started, there's a boy in the story, his name's Samuel, that's the namesake of the book, and you may be familiar, he was a prophet, and, and there's some connections there, but we don't have time to go into it. And Samuel grows up, so at least a decade has passed. And Eli gets old. And here's what it says in verse 2. Now, Eli, who was how old? Very old. Very old. Heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel. 
and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. And so what was he going to do about it? He was going to call those brothers in and finally, finally give them a talking to. And here's how his talking to begins. So he said to them, why do you do such things? And then this next verse is just, it's really incredible. I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. I'm sorry, time out. All the people? Like it took all the people, Eli, for you to like step up and do something? Like I don't even know how many people is all the people, but it almost sounds like he's implying the entire nation of Israel is like, we all know what's going on now, so finally we're going to step in and say, Eli, bro, you need to say something. I mean like, come on, like if half of all the people, come on, think about it, if half of all the people came up to you and said, listen, I think there's a problem, shouldn't you probably do something? But he doesn't until now. And then it's that moment where you're trying to move forward and you're looking back and you're realizing, uh-oh, it's a little too little too late. And there's no space to say anything. Probably good chances are they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. Your window of opportunity to do and say the right thing is gone. Here's what Samuel, or Eli, excuse me, says to the boys. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people, like all the people, is not good. If one person sins against the other, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who's going to intercede? How's that going to work out? If you've been wrong in the Lord for a decade now, plus, who's going who's to fix that for you? To which, as Christians, we would say, Jesus, but Jesus isn't there yet. So, uh-oh, time out. Not good for them. Eli, you're just a little, too little, excuse me, too late. And this is what for Samuel says. His boys, the sons, however, shocker, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Because they've been doing it so long. It's practically their habit. It's practically their life. And then it's very difficult to change when you've let it go for that long. And how do you expect, like, after one chat, like, oh, all Eli has to do is sit him down once, and now they're going to fix a decades-long habit or issue? It's not how it works. You know that's not how it works. And then there's this one little verse. If you go home and read it, you may get to that and be like, whoa, Taylor, I got some questions, so I thought, hey, we better just address this right now, so we're going to kind of get off on a tangent, and we're going to come right back. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. It's like, whoa. I mean, God, you had it out for them, like, from the beginning or something. And so I just want to contextualize this for you, that if you actually jump into the Hebrew, the original language here, it kind of gets a little lost when you translate it into English. Um, it doesn't carry maybe the best connotation. It almost sounds like God has, like, from the beginning, it's like, I'm going to take them guys out. That's my plan, and I'm liking it. I'm happy with it. It's not exactly what he's saying, because if you contextualize this, especially with the whole Old Testament and these moments where God would kind of say something or do something to this extent, it's essentially that God is, like, determined to destroy. It's not that he's planned out and this is happening. It's like he's just determined to destroy this evil that's taking place. And come on, let's just be realistic here. If you gave someone a free house to live in, you fed them, and then you gave them authority over other people, especially people that you care deeply about, that you consider to be your family members, and they hurt them over and over and over again, and they abuse them over and over and over again. 
It could be that after a decade plus of that, you might yourself be like, I'm determined to destroy what's going on here. Now, the other thing I think we've got to remember is that God is a forgiving God. That, and I checked before I got up here and said this, but there is no instance where you can fairly say that if someone, in the, at least in the biblical story, that someone went to God and said, God, I'm sorry, and that they meant it, or in Christian terms, we call it repentance, or you've changed paths, you've changed directions in your, directions in your life, that, that somebody's gone to God and said that, and then God's like, well, no, too late, I'm determined to destroy you. Just, it doesn't happen. If you go to your heavenly father and say, Lord, I know I've been doing this wrong for decade plus. I need your forgiveness. It's probably right there waiting for you. But it was a little too late because these sons did not listen to them. And so essentially how the story goes, and you can read it, like I said, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and then chapter 3. Essentially how the story goes is the nation of Israel gets into a little tuffle with their arch enemy, the Philistines. You may have heard of them. They had some really strong, big warrior folk, anywho. And so they get into a little bit of a tuffle, and so the two brothers have this great idea, like, we're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God resides, and we're going to take that baby out to the battlefield to kind of give the troops a little, like, boost of confidence. Like, the presence of God is literally in the room. Like, he is with us. And then they still lost. But it wasn't just like a loss of battle. It was like they lost. And so the Philistines literally moved in and destroyed Shiloh, and the tabernacle, and the Ark of the Covenant was lost, until Indiana Jones found it. No, I'm just kidding. But it was lost. So essentially, the nation of Israel at this point, the tribes of Israel, are in disarray. And what's really interesting is if you go to Shiloh today, which you can, and you can go walk around the ruins of Shiloh, um, this is the approximate location which archaeologists are finding enough evidence to suggest that this is where the Ark of the Covenant and where the tabernacle would have resided, approximately in this, this location right here. And what's also interesting is they found uh, what's called a burn layer. And we talked about this last week if you were here, but essentially a burn layer is when a civilization exists and then oftentimes when they were conquered, the conquerors would go in and they would burn everything because it's really difficult to restart uh, a community when they burn everything, papers, documents, transactions, whatever it is. And so they'd burn everything and then that would leave a layer of burnt that would eventually be covered up over time. And then they'd eventually, as archaeologists, dig down and find these burn layers. And you can date these and get pretty approximate. And this burn layer, and this is not like just some guy that said this. This is the archaeological community has dated this burn layer to approximately the time of this Philistine invasion and the destruction of Shiloh. That's why I think when we think biblical terms, sometimes we think imaginary. We think story. This isn't a story. This is history. We just read it through a religious books and book, and sometimes we take it out of context, but this is just as much religion or as faith or relationship in God as it is just reality. It's history, and so you can go and you can look at it. And so the Philistines conquered in part because Eli didn't speak up when he should have. So we have the choice. We can move forward and look back and learn something from this, or we can move forward and just try to avoid the truth that sometimes we probably should say something, and we don't. 
So I just want to get really practical for a second and talk about this. What relationships, in what relationships or relationship should you say something but you haven't? And I understand it's complicated. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make this easy. Like, well, just go do it. I get that it's complicated. I get that there's a lot of factors. I get that you just can't walk in tomorrow morning and, you know, speak your mind. Please don't do that, in fact. Please do not go to work tomorrow and, like, give your boss an earful and explain why they're a bad boss and then lose your job over it and then say, well, Pastor Taylor told me so. I did not tell you so. Please do not take this out of context. I'm also not giving you an out, though. I'm trying to get this to a place in your mind and in your heart where you're like, I probably should do a better job of addressing this. Because if I have a relationship, in other words, in which I have gained influence in someone else's life, I should probably have some responsibility to the decisions that they make, especially if you are a Jesus follower, because that's just kind of how the Jesus follower thing works. If you love your neighbor as yourself, then you would speak up if they were doing something that you yourself would not do and would not be loving, right? And so that's what you should do. So my hope is, at least my, the very least of my goals today, is that you would think about this. Maybe even discuss it with the people closest to you or your spouse, or especially if you and your spouse have a relationship with someone and you're kind of on the same page with the situation and, and you're wondering if you should say something. Because the problem is if you let it slide, who is going to say something? What could change if you addressed the problem? And so whatever you need to do to kind of absorb the most out of like the remaining three, four minutes that I'm going to share, please do. Even if you need to take pictures of the next couple slides with your phone, okay? Here's what you need to do. And this is not an exhaustive list, just some things to get you started. You need to watch our series called Bad Blood, which we just got done with a few months ago, okay? It's about bad blood between relationships. You need to buy the book, Crucial Conversations, listen to it on audiobook, read it, whatever it takes. It is an exceptionally practical book for doing something that, let's be honest, we're not taught. It's not like our parents sat us down, at least mine didn't, I'm guessing yours didn't either, and say, hey, listen, son, listen, um, daughter, I just need to have a talk with you. And you're like, oh boy. And you're like, and and then they're like, I need to talk to you about how to have crucial critical conversations, and you're like, I did not expect that that's where we were going, but that's cool, and then they sit down, they explain it, you practice with them, all that stuff. You just don't do that, and so you have to learn this to do it well, and so go out there, and then I need you to be aware of half-truths, and this is like super prevalent today, and I'm not trying to get political and all that, but it is like everywhere. You have to be aware of half-truths in your relationships, though, Because the problem is, Eli's sons, listen, they were doing something that was at least half true. Because they were supposed to get the meat, right? They just weren't supposed to get it in the way that they got it. And that makes it really tough when you or I have to go into that relationship and we're like, hey, how do we address this? Well, the problem is they're kind of doing it half right. They're just not doing the other half right. And And it makes it a little bit more difficult for us to stand on the moral high ground because they're partially right. It makes it difficult... For us to stand up in front of everyone and say, this is not right. Because I think culturally, we've kind of let it slide in a sense to the place of, even if it's at least half true, we'll let it go. But in God's world, in the world where we are called to love others, love doesn't allow for half truth. Love is full truth because you care because you care. 
Then you need to ask yourself this question, okay? Is my motive to bring grace and truth? And I picked this specifically, and we talk about this a lot. Jesus was the fullness of grace and truth, not part of, not both and. It was like all of, the fullness of both grace and truth. And so you need to ask yourself, am I going into this conversation willing to give grace, willing to give forgiveness and mercy and understanding and listen because all I know, I could be wrong. And so I'm willing to go in and meet it with grace, but I am also prepared to not just give half truth, to give the full truth of the situation. And you can talk to other people and prepare and, and think through this. That's a great idea, but you need to check your motives and check what you're thinking you're going to do before you do it because it, we can easily slide into anger and resentment and just giving people an earful. That's just too easy. And so is my motive the right motive? Have I established a relationship? Have, have we established a relationship? Because too often we interject ourselves into a situation where we have no relationship with the other person. And trust doesn't exist. And in the absence of trust, it is really difficult to have a good conversation because they don't trust you. Makes sense. And then when you have a relationship, people tend to think or at least tend to listen better because they know you're taking a risk by having this tough conversation. Makes sense because if you stand to sacrifice or stand to lose that relationship just as much as they stand to lose that relationship, I think subconsciously we recognize that we're both doing something that's uncomfortable and we're willing to at least consider. But if you have nothing to sacrifice, in other words, if you have no relationship to even be sacrificed on the altar, so to speak, of truth, then you have nothing to use as leverage to get someone else to listen. And it's not like a means to an end. It's just like a, hey, this is just compassion. You can't be compassionate if there's no relationship. It's difficult because people don't trust you. And so be prepared to ask yourself, have we established a relationship enough where I can interject myself into this conversation? In what relationships do you have in your life where you should say something, but you haven't? So that way you won't get more down the road, you won't move forward and look back and say, I wish I could have, should have, probably should have thought about it more. I mean, imagine the difference that just this room alone could make if, if we all went out into our lives and into our relationships, especially our friendships and our family relationships, and we looked at the people around us, and, and we sat down and said, hey, could I just could I buy a coffee? Could I, you know, just buy a lunch or something? I just want to sit down and talk to you about something. And you, and you sit down and you say, hey, I've just, I've noticed this when you parent your kids? Or do you realize your kids are watching you and they're learning? And as much as you think they're going to turn out better, the reality is they will be more of a product of your parenting style than anything else in their lives. And so this matters. Or hey, I've noticed how you're leading other people on our team hurts people. And it hurts me. And I believe you're a good person. I believe that you don't want to hurt people, but I just wanted to tell you honestly because, not because I want to see you fail, but because it hurts people, and I don't want you to be doing, I, I don't think that you, I think you could be doing a better job. I don't think you want to hurt people, and I just wanted you to know. Imagine the difference if we built relationships in that way, if we went forward with the right motives, and we brought 
not just our truth, which is a matter of our perspective, but we brought God's truth to bear. And not to hurt people. Not to hurt people, because people are already hurting. Especially people like those two brothers. Deep down, there is a lot of hurt. And so we're not going into it with the intent of hurting them. We're going in the intent of helping a hurting person and being willing to, in the midst of that, speak grace and truth into their lives. Last thing, and this could get a little close to home, so just heads up. Some of you, if you ask this question, in what relationship should I say something but I haven't, the answer is your relationship with God. Because you've been letting that one slide for a little too long. And before you start having healthy relationships and speaking under other people's lives, maybe you should get that part right. Because he has a lot to say and to teach you and to show you and to stretch you. And you probably have a lot on your heart and your mind to share with him. And so maybe that's the place where you need to start as well. If you would, bow your heads. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is easier to avoid. It's easier to excuse ourselves. Easier to say it's somebody else's responsibility. It's easier to walk away. It's easier to think we don't have influence into other people's lives. It's easier to say we're too busy. It's easier. It's easier not to do something. It's easier not to say something. But, Lord, just as you said to the Israelites thousands of years ago, and you said through your son Jesus 2,000 years ago, and in a lot of ways you're still trying to speak into our hearts today, you care so much about us, you, you want to have a relationship so much with us that you're willing to tell us the truth of where we are and the consequences of our decisions and the, the sin where we miss the mark. That's what sin is, where we miss the mark with you and others around us, where, where we fail to live up to the love that you have created, not our own version of love, but your version of love, that, Lord, you're willing to step into this and you're willing to be honest in grace and truth, not to condemn us, but to love us and invite us into something new, that that's the kind of God who you are. And so, Lord, I just pray that that would be the kind of people we aspire to be. Followers of Jesus who say, you know what? In the midst of the difficulty, I'm going to bring grace and truth. I'm going to build the relationship so I can earn their respect and their trust. And so I have, I have the ability to speak into these, not to hurt people, but to help people who are hurting. And Lord, that you are not a God who is absent, but a God who will help us to move through these difficult conversations and relationships. But we would look back on the story of Eli and his sons, and we would recognize that there is a cost, and too often is not worth being silent. And so, Father, would you just help us, wherever we fall on the spectrum of faith or our walk with you, would you just help us to have the courage and the strength and the wisdom and the people in our lives to be able to live out the truth that you have given us and taught us. Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Remember, God is a God of grace and truth, and so how can you bring those factors into those difficult conversations, into those relationships? 
Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next week as we conclude our series.